as we <clears throat> close out the uh, book of 1 Kings and we open up the book of 2 Kings. And God willing, we get to uh, take a look at the end of Elijah's time and the beginning of Elisha's time. It's a pretty sweet time in Scripture. So I invite you to open up 1 Kings 22. We'll finish up the last few verses there and then we'll head on over. If you remember, we've been looking into the lives of the kings of the northern kingdom. And we just finished up last week talking about Ahab. Ahab, who was a man who, you just, I guess the Bible puts it best. He was wickeder or more wicked than all those who came before. And as we look at Ahab, his life surrendered to whatever made him happy. Feeding the desires of, of flesh. And to be honest, you know, the battle that Ahab fought and lost is the same battle that we fight every day. That's the battle with our flesh. And, and what's going to win, our flesh or our spirit? Are we going to just give in to the desires of our flesh, the things that our flesh wants? We have control. You don't have to give it. You don't have to feed your flesh one more meal. You can focus on your spirit and, and learn to have a single heart like David. You have a single heart? You have some food? <laughs> well, we'll take care of you. As we look and as we see, we want to be able to recognize that that's what God has, what he's working there in the life of, of Ahab and what he wants to show us. That struggle, that design to overcome the flesh is something that we want to do battle with, or we want to win. And as we look and we see the man of God that God places in his life, even for Ahab, the most wicked guy, God sent him Elijah, and Elijah went to him. God sent him Micaiah, Micaiah went to him. God sent him unnamed prophets. They went. God continuously reached out over and over to Ahab. But Ahab, we see, never turning, never returning to the Lord in verse 41 of chapter 22, we read, And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, had become a king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. So, and by way of comparison, we've been looking at Ahab in the very last story we, we talked about. Jehoshaphat, who was a king of the southern kingdom, Judah, he made an alliance with Ahab to help him with the uh, king of Syria. And so, we're, we're by comparison, we have Ahab, all kinds of chaos and struggle going on. Then you have Jehoshaphat, a man who followed the Lord, and we read what the Lord says about him. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, and his daughter, Shelahi. And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord." By way of comparison, you have the man who was the most wicked, evil, bent against doing whatever God had for him. And you have, by comparison, Jehoshaphat. Not perfect, we'll see in a moment, but who never turned. He followed the footsteps his father laid out before him. But nevertheless, listen, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The high places was where the people would build their altars to sacrifice and worship Baal. The important thing to realize here is not that they had none of that in the southern kingdom. They did. 
Until you come to the reign of Josiah, the high places are still going to be there, and the people are still going to sacrifice on them. Now, they have good godly kings, more godly kings. Actually, they're, the other side doesn't have any. So they have more godly kings and God's prophets and spirit moving through and doing things. But the people, their desire still battling with the flesh is to go and, and worship Baal, to burn on the high places, to do the things the flesh wants to do. Remember, we talked about it. You, you can break Baal down to the simplest of all terms. Money, sex, and power. That's Baal. You can refine it any way you want to. But that is the things that mankind will sell his soul for. Over and over again. The idea of, of being, as the scripture tells in Timothy, lovers of pleasure. That that marks the men of the last days. It marks the flesh. And it's a struggle in the flesh. So they have that battle still going on in the south. But it says in verse 44, Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed and how he made war, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. The perverted persons, a lot of people want to point to that and say it's talking about homosexuals. What it's really talking about is temple prostitutes. Now, they were both male and female. The, the Hebrew word is Kadesh. Uh, the, the meaning of the word is somewhat difficult to nail down, but what most people agree on is he's talking about all the temple prostitutes, those who people would buy for sex in order to worship Baal. So those, at least, were under his reign, were pushed out. Of course, where'd they go? North. Where everything was allowed. North, Israel. South, Judah. Well, it says, Then there was no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. Now, Edom was under control of Judah. Moab was under control of Israel. And the, the reason this point is brought out is just to show that as Jehoshaphat is not perfect, but as he follows the Lord, then the Lord gives him certain victories. Edom doesn't rise up in rebellion. We'll see in a moment, Moab does. Moab does do that. But Edom doesn't have a king. They're, they're following Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never sailed, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Now, verse 49, Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried. And his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Now we turn from Judah and we focus again on Israel. Back to Israel, it says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. Now that's something you're going to see often in a northern kingdom. Short reigns, lots of violence, lots of problem. Why? Because men have become lovers of themselves and not lovers of God. They are doing whatever makes them happy. And when men spend their life doing what makes them happy, other people get hurt. That's just how it works. It's always worked that way. And so, same way, you, you have dynasties that switch and change and move back and forth. Now, we're still under the same dynasty following under Ahab, but we're, we'll see some changes as we continue to go forward. But we have Ahaziah. Now, what's it say about him in verse 52? He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father 
and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. The whole problem with Israel started with Jeroboam. Jeroboam was afraid. Remember, he was afraid the people were going to leave. So instead of allowing them to go to the temple to worship and come back home, he designed their own false religious system. He married Judaism with calf worship. He built two calves. The idea of the calves is that they were the, the footholds of, of Yahweh. But he incorporated calf worship. He had calves in Samaria. He had calves in Dan. And they, they mingled this worship. And ultimately it got mingled in with Baal. And you have this religious system that doesn't even resemble true Judaism and the worship of the one true God. That is the way of Jeroboam. So when it says that Hazai followed the way of his father, that he followed his father's example, what was his father's example? To rebel against God. He followed in the way of his mother. What was his mother's example? To worship Baal. That's who, that's his focus. Hazai doesn't worship God at all. And it falls in the way of Jeroboam. He still allows a false religious system to permeate his kingdom. So these are the three charges that God has against Ahaziah. Verse 53, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Now, Second Kings, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So we see rebellion beginning, instability in the kingdom in the north. We'll pick up on that again in chapter 3, but it goes on the story in verse 2. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent a messenger and said to him, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. And when we look at Ahaziah, he falls through the lattice. Uh, some people say it's a window, and he, or he was up on his patio and leaned on the lattice work at the edge, but... Both of those things probably would have killed him. But they did have, in those days, up onto their patio and, and protected by a latticework, skylights. And if he was up, knowing what I know about Ahaziah, drinking, partying, doing whatever it was up on the roof, it's not a far stretch. That what he falls through is the skylight. The lattice of the skylight injures himself pretty severely and decides to go after Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to find out whether or not he's going to get better. Beelzebub means the Lord of the Flies. He's one of the Baals. There are several Baals. The idea of Baal was simply this. Baal was the God who brought life, who brought rain and sustenance. Every year when winter came, Baal was either died or was imprisoned. And they would have to pray and sacrifice to Baal to get Baal back out of prison. And spring would come and, and the crops and the rain. And that was a gift that Baal gave. So when they worshipped Baal, that was kind of the way their focus was. And what we see here is that Hazai is all about Baal, not about God at all. He's not, he's not looking for a prophet. He's not looking for anybody. He sends men to, the, to, uh, to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. In verse 3 it says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? So the angel of the Lord. It's kind of important you have a definite article before the capital or the, the angel of the capital L-O-R-D. It's, it's most commonly referred to as a, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before he's incarnate. This is God. 
The angel of the Lord is an appearance of God. Now, man cannot see God at any time. God's invisible. Who can man see? We can see Jesus. He is God in the flesh. So we have the angel of the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't say he sees the angel of the Lord. So I think that's important. I think what it says is the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite. And it's so interesting because who else to bring the word of God than God the word? He brings that to Elijah the Tishbite. So he tells Elijah the Tishbite, go. Uh, in verse 4, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you will surely die. So Elijah departed. When God told Elijah to go, Elijah went. That's one of the unique things about Elijah. So Elijah goes, and when the messengers returned to him, he said, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, he finds those guys. <clears throat> and he says, You shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you will surely die. And when the messengers returned to him and said to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? <clears throat> so they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said thus, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was it? Now I'm sure he heard lots of stories from his papa, Ahab, because Ahab had a lot of these issues with Elijah the Tishbite. So he asked them, what's this guy look like that came up and meet you and told you these words? So they said, he's a hairy man, camel skin. Just, like, just picture John the Baptist, only... The first one. And here he, he comes. Here he is. There is Harry covered in a, in a camel coat. Wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, oh, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He knew who he was. And the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him. And there he was sitting on top of the hill. And he spoke to him. Man of God, the king said, come down. Man, I'm sorry, for, I feel bad for the first two captains. So this captain goes. What's his, his goal is to arrest Elijah. You said the king's going to die. I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the whole attitude is about. But when he comes to the man of God, he comes to him and he, he announces first off. We look at him, we listen to his words, man of God. But without any regard or any respect. So Elijah answered and said, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Gone. Oh. So he sent another captain of 50. With his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. That's like saying, come down now. No more that fire calling down from heaven. You Get down here. So he's got a worse attitude than the first guy. So Elijah answered. And he said to him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So again, the king sent his captain, a third captain of fifty and his fifty men. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him. And said, Man of God, please, let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. 
Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties. Now let my life now be precious in your sight. And again, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go with them and do not be afraid of them. 366 times throughout the word of God, we have that phrase. Do not be afraid. He has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not called us and placed us in places where we have to be afraid. He calls us to fear not, to trust in Him. And watch His deliverance. To trust in the things that God brings into our life. That the Lord knows what He's doing. So Elijah goes with them. There on the hillside, there's two scorch marks. There could have been three. But the third captain had at least the humility to ask nice of the man of God. I think if I'd have been the second guy, I'd have started being nice at the second guy. I don't know, just me. Fire come out of heaven and eating everybody on the ground is enough to get me humble. I don't know what that was or what just happened, but you have my attention. So he said to them, he went and he comes before Ahaziah. Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you will not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. The message that Elijah had never changed. And the sad thing is, Ahaziah never reached the point where he was willing to repent. He just stayed hard-hearted the whole time. So the next verse, verse 17, So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, just in case you want to fight confusion, you have two guys with the same name. Two different kingdoms. This is when things start to get a little confusing. It's like saying Steve is in the north and Steve is in the south. So you have two guys. Anyways, the scripture lays out for us. The rest of the acts of Ahaziah, that he, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Ahaziah's brother takes over. Now Ahaziah's brother, as he comes into place, we come to chapter 2 of Second Kings, and we enter into the section of scripture that deals with the, the end of Elijah's time and the beginning of Elisha's. And there's some pretty uh, interesting things that we see as we take a look to, to what's going on in the life of Elijah. It says, And it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So they're in Gilgal. We come to Gilgal. Gilgal means sacred. And as we come to the end of Elijah's time, he starts to, to go to three different schools of the prophets. He's going to go visit them. Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. Three schools of the prophets. And Elijah's going to go and, and I don't know what, he says his goodbyes or whatever he does as he, as he comes through each one. Elijah knows that it's on his time and so... I believe he leads Elisha through a time of preparation. 
I think he leads them through a time of preparation. In fact, beginning in Gilgal, at the school of the prophets there in Gilgal, Gilgal to me is the place of purification. You remember Gilgal. In the, the book of Joshua, as the children of Israel are preparing to cross the Jordan River and come and do battle against Jericho, they're, they're the ones who made the proper choice. You remember the children of Israel, they came to the promised land and they wouldn't go in. They were afraid. They said, there are giants over there, they're too big, you know, and so we can't do it. So the Lord said, you're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation is passed, and then the next generation will come. So this is that next generation, and they've come, and Joshua is their leader. Moses is gone. And Joshua comes down And they come to Gilgal and they're preparing to cross the river Jordan. They're looking to do battle with Jericho. And the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, Circumcise every man. Because in the last 40 years, none of them have been circumcised. And so he calls him to this incredible, to me, this incredible consecration to God. In the shadow of Jericho, they're within striking distance of Jericho. The guys on Jericho are looking over the wall thinking, man, that's a lot of people getting ready to cross the river. It's kind of crazy. There they are. Gilgal, the place of purification. They are all circumcised. Now not one of the men can fight. For at least several days. Oh, it takes all the fight out of them. They're, they're there. They're there. But here's what I think as we look at this and as we consider that story, we consider that consecration to God. And here, it's, it's just neat as you watch the stories behind the places where Elijah takes Elisha. He, he stops him here in, in Gilgal. So we have a Gilgal, the place where the, the circumcision takes place we have the place where where god does this uh this incredible work and it reminds us of that very thing we were talking about earlier the concept that god wants us to deal with our flesh to deal with the battle in our flesh to come to that place that says i'm gonna i'm going to get my flesh under control paul would say he buffets himself he, the, the idea, the picture of a, of a boxer hitting himself, but the idea that he's saying is, I've got to control my flesh. Now, it's not something that we do in our flesh. It's something that we do in the spirit. But we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice. You know, I've been, I've been contemplating a lot of things in regard to, to prayer and different things that God's been laying on my heart. And one of the challenges I... I was speaking to some people a couple of days ago about was this idea that the most important thing that we can be committed to doing is being committed to pray. And then we think, how much do I pray a day? Not that it's about how much time you spend, but surely if it's that important, it would be a priority in our life. And then I think about how much time I spend watching movies. Well, how about this? How much time I spend at a red light in my lifetime? The average is 60 seconds a day in prayer. That's the average. If I'm going to come to the place of purification and deal with my flesh, 
That's where it's going to be dealt with. It's going to be dealt with that place of prayer. It's going to be dealt with saying that I, I am in control of my fleshly desires. If I stop feeding the flesh, what happens to it? It starves. Well, if, I don't want you to just focus on not feeding the flesh. How about if I stop feeding the flesh and I start feeding my spirit? I start spending time in God's word. I make that a priority. I start spending time in prayer. Gosh, if I prayed at every red light, it would be better than the average. The time that we have to wait in those places. He brings Elisha to the, to the, to the place where the children of Israel were purified, where they cut away their flesh, where they purified themselves, entrusting themselves to God, committing themselves in the hand of God in the, in the, with their enemies close enough to attack them. They put themselves and mobilized themselves just to be obedient to what God was telling them to do. Dealing with the flesh, focused on the flesh. In Colossians, if you want to just hold your place here and come with me to Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the Laodiceans. Maybe you remember those guys. The Laodiceans, one of the seven letters to the seven churches, their sister city was Colossae. And he says in in chapter 2, verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. She says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What's that mean? It's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. He, he, he speaks again of it in, in Romans chapter 8. What he's telling us is that Christ in his in his sacrifice, in his death, burial, and resurrection, has made a way for us to overcome the flesh. We too can come to the place of purification. We make excuses, I have to vent. Yet the proverb says that that's a foolish man who vents. We say that we have to just, we have a bad temper. We excuse the different areas of our flesh. I excuse my selfishness. It doesn't make it any less of a problem or a sin. If I want to come to the place of purification, then I want to come to that place in honesty and asking God to do that work in my heart and life that He has empowered already. He has empowered it already. The circumcision not made with hands that Jesus Christ gives as we put our faith and trust in Him to deliver us from the flesh. But we have to make a decision that we want to come to that place. We could just keep every day the same as every day before. Look back. The last five years of your life, the next five will be just like it. And the next five after that will be just like that. We want to have victory over the flesh. You've got to do something that you haven't done. 
That means we've got to be just like Elijah. One of the schools of the prophets was in that place, the place of remembrance. Gilgal means sacred. They had stone pillars set up in that place. That's where they launched every invasion left into the promised land, came out of Gilgal. All of that was to remember that this is a place where we dealt with the flesh. This is a place where we deal with the flesh. I mean, I'd I'd be right there. Except for the journey that the Lord's brought me on in the last 14 days. I might have said, well, my flesh isn't all that bad. It's all good. But as I have made myself available to God, as I have made the choice to come to a place and say, you know what, my life is busy. I don't know. Maybe all you guys have a busier life than me. So that's great. I'll send you the medal later. But the point is, that's what we have. Lives, busy, chaos. Uh, I got to have time for me. I got to have time to wind down. And we have a life that's full. And if we want God to speak into our life, we got to make space in it. That means I got to reevaluate my priorities. Where I spend my time first. I shared a little bit with you before. When I, why am I getting up in the morning? Now, I'm getting up just so I can be with the Lord. And that's where the time is. Whatever that time is so that that can happen. I'm getting up so I can be with Him. So I can have time to read His Word. So I can have time to come alongside my wife and pray together. It's been one of the most incredible blessings we've ever experienced. But prior to this, I would always kind of think, well, I got it. I'll do mine. You do yours. We're good. We'll come together, pray at night. It's all. I was missing out on a blessing because I never made any space. I never came to the place of purification. I never came to the place where I started to cut away the garbage in the flesh of my life and start to make room for the Lord to speak to me. How much time did I spend in my life coming home, rushing home to to sit down and watch a movie or to unwind. I need to unwind. I just need to disconnect. Just give me some disconnect time. I don't care how, where your disconnect time is. Your disconnect time could be a, a, doing a puzzle. Your disconnect time could be reading a book. It doesn't matter what the event is that you're doing. The question is, in that event, are we robbing God of time that he can speak to me? Or am I making myself available to him? Because sometimes we just have to come to the Lord and be still and know that he is God. We have to come to that, that cleft in the rock like Elijah came to and wait for the gentle silence of God to move. To speak. To make time. To make space for God to fill. To me, that's the place of purification. Coming to that place. Allowing God to speak. Allowing God to guide. Well, look what, look what it is that Elijah said to Elisha. He says, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. He, he's moving on. He's, he's got four different stops he's going to make along his way. And what I love about Elisha is Elisha doesn't want to just stop. But that's what I did for so much of my life. Well, I come to the first place. Let's just pretend I came to Gilgal. And I said, that's all I want. That's enough of God. That's enough of everything. So when Elijah looks at me and says, hey, just stay here. I'm going to keep going. I would have stayed. Do you want more of him? 
Do you want more of the Lord? Do you want more of the Spirit? Do you want to really experience the power that God talks about on the page of Scripture? I read about power. I read about men who walked over to a guy who was lame and just knew by the power of the Spirit to say to him, rise up and walk. And we make excuses that that's impossible, can't happen today, because we'll change our theology, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that'll stop. The Bible says that continue until that which is perfect has come. Last I checked, that was Jesus Christ. He's not here. So he said, I won't leave you orphans. I will give you my spirit. He will lead you into all truth. It's the power of the spirit that does the work. Are we submitted to the power of the spirit in order to hear the voice of God? Have we come to the place of purification? We say, and I want to keep going. I want to experience more. I want to have what the Bible really says instead of making excuses of why it doesn't exist today. Because it's there. It's real. So Elisha looks at, at Elijah and he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. If you're going up the mountain, Elijah, I'm coming with you. If you're going to the next spot, the next stop in our spiritual journey, then I'm going with you all the way. I'm going with you. I'm not going to stop. That was, I, that's the attitude I want to have with the Lord. God, wherever you're taking me, whatever you're, it's kind of painful. Because when you sit down in a place of purification, and God, the, the premier message that the Lord gave me was you're selfish, and you need to deal with your selfishness. That's not the most pleasant conversation I've ever had with the Lord before. But he was right. I don't want to just stop there. I want to continue. I want to keep moving forward. I want to keep going on. And that's what we see in Elisha. Because Elisha, he wants to have the mantle of Elijah. He wants to do the work of God. So he wants to follow the man of God. He wants to follow him because he called him. He laid his mantle on his shoulder and said, come and follow me. And there's been Elisha ever since. Serving Elijah. Now he knows Elijah's time is coming to an end. And he wants the mantle He wants all this following to have been for a purpose. That I've been following Elijah so that Elijah, so that I will continue his ministry. Wherever you go, I want to go. So, Elisha's ready for the second stop. Second stop, well that's Bethel, the house of God. They go to Bethel. You remember what happened in Bethel? Bethel's that place... When Jacob was doing all his scheming, you remember Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver, the one through whom the promise was to come. When he stole his birthright and he ripped off his brother and he got the blessing from their dad, all that conniving that he did. And he's pretty sure that when Esau finds out what he's done, he's going to whoop him. So he says, I got to go. I got to get out of here. So he takes off and he spends the night in a place where a rock is his pillow. And he has a vision. And he sees this this ladder going up into heaven where the angels are ascending and descending upon this ladder. And he has this vision. He wakes up and he said, wow, God was here and I never knew it. So he changed the name of that place and he started to call it Bethel. The house of God, the place where Jacob laid with his head on a stone. See, Bethel becomes a place of the realization, the realization of God's presence always 
being with us. That second place, recognizing the truth of God's presence. As you consider this, just hold your finger in this place and turn to the left. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 33. One of my favorite uh, Old Testament scriptures as we take a look. Exodus chapter 33, verse 4. Actually, let's just look at the whole thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, that's at verse 1, and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I'll send my angel before you, and he'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to this children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. When I look at this scripture... As we look at this story, what's going on is they've come to the place where they have an opportunity to enter into the land. And God is frustrated. Well, frustrated is a bad term. God is angry with their sin. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to fulfill all the promises I've given you. I'm going to do all that, but I'm not going with you. You go, God said, and I'm staying here. And I love the fact that the children of Israel didn't go they mourned they stopped they took off their ornaments they they did the things that god wanted them to do why because god's presence was more important to them than all the other stuff i've shared with you before if i could say that you could have heaven and all the greatness of heaven and all the beauty and all the majesty and all the great stories you've ever heard that you no more tears no more pain no more sorrow all your loved ones will be there Everything that you've ever longed for in heaven will be there, but Jesus won't be there. If that satisfies you, then you have to ask yourself where you are at. If you would be satisfied with heaven without Jesus, then there's something wrong because you don't long for the presence of God. You just want good things. Everybody wants good things. Great, good things. My flesh wants good things. My flesh never gets tired of having good things. But my spirit longs for seeing Jesus Christ face to face. Longs to be in his presence. To be there. Not to be in a place where God is is saying, you can have all that, but I'm not going. I want to be where God is. I come to the place of the realization of the presence of God. I want to experience the presence of God. In Psalm 16, the psalmist writes, in Psalm 1611, if you want to look, you're welcome to. If you want to wait, I'll read it to you. Psalm 1611, You will show me the path of life, for in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. Not in heaven where all the good stuff is, that's the fullness of joy. What do you say? In your presence. In the place where you are. Last night I had a, an opportunity to, to just have a time of prayer with a couple of guys that, that just happened to be here. And we entered in and, and I don't even know how much time passed, but it was like we were standing in the Holy of Holies. God was doing great things. We're in there praying and bawling and the Spirit's moving. And to be honest with you, it would never have stopped. I'd still been in there. I'd still been in the same place praying calling on the name of the Lord if my phone hadn't rang in the middle of it. About, probably about 9.30, my phone rang. And I have a super obnoxious ring on my phone. And it just snapped me out of, of where I was, in the presence of God. I was sharing with these same guys, as, as the Lord has led me on, on this spiritual journey that I've been on the past 14 days, and as I've been going through it, um, what I've longed for is those sweet times that I have with the Lord, those mornings with my wife as we're praying that are just like that time that I've described. And I'm, I just feel like I'm in God's presence and incredible things are happening. God's pouring out His Spirit in incredible ways. And then eventually, you know, it comes to an end and you got to go and you got to start the things of the day. The next day, I want that back. I want it again. I want to be in His presence. I want to bathe in the Spirit. I want to feel the Spirit of God over me. I want to feel the power of God. I want to pray with audacity. I want to pray with boldness. I want to enter into His throne room and just feel like I'm standing there in just a small corner bathing on a little bit of His glory. Because it's better than anything I've ever experienced. Anything I've ever had. Anything else, any other dream I wanted to realize. That is better to be in the presence of God. I long for that. I long to be in that place, in the Shekinah, in the Kabod of God, as His glory falls. We get there by going through the place of purification and getting some control over our flesh and making space for God to move. And then we get in that place and God moves. He does amazing things. And I don't want to leave that place. It's next time my phone won't be on. So if you're calling me and I don't answer, you know where I'm at. I don't know if I'll come out of it. I, honestly, it was short of the day the Lord gave me the, 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 uh, the gift of tongues out on a Lonely high, stretch of highway, that was probably one of the sweetest times ever I've had in the presence of God. I was right here, not some fancy place, in an office right over there. But you can go sit in there right now, and all you'll see is a puppy who's probably eating my couch right now. Because it's not about where you're at. It's about who you want to connect with. What are you willing to trade for the presence of God? And there's nothing in my life I'll keep. If he wants it, he can have it all. Everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. If God wants it, it's his. I want his presence more than I want anything else. 
Just like Elisha and Elijah coming to the place. It represents the presence of God. And they didn't even know. They didn't make any special plans. They didn't do any special things. Just bam! God was there. But you know that you can make that opportunity? I have experienced that in the last 14 days. More than I have probably for the, I don't know, five years prior. Why? Oh, I started a fast. Is that it? You got a fast to do it? I don't know. I don't think it's a fast. What I started was making space for God to move in my life. What I started was letting go of all those little things I love to do that God says, Jackie, that's not really a sin and it's not really a problem, but when you fill up your time with that, you can't have time with me. So I started letting it go. And God starts showing up. And he starts speaking and he starts moving and he starts doing things. And all of a sudden, I don't even remember what I had to give up to have that. It was like, what else, I, what else can I give? Here, take it. Whatever you want. Whatever I can give so that I can be in your presence. But sometimes it requires us looking at our priorities. Because sometimes one of the things that keeps us from God is our own busyness. We can fill our lives with millions of good things. But if in the midst of all those good things, you do not have a sufficient amount of time for you and the Lord, it doesn't matter how many hungry children you feed. We want to be able to draw. We want to be able to experience the presence of God. We come to that place. That's where we get energized. That's where we get equipped. That's where we get that's where we get all the different things that we need. Jesus had a a couple of brothers. His brothers didn't really believe in him until after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, after they saw the Lord, their their attitudes changed a little bit. And one of them wrote something that I have always loved. And this is why I want to be in his presence. In in the book of Jude, this is what Jude wrote. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Why I want to be in his presence? Because that's where I'm going to experience victory is in his presence. That's where I'm going to be able to overcome those struggles. Because he is able to keep me from falling. He is able to keep me into that day. He is able to bring me into the presence of his glory. It's him. He's the main thing. And we want to be able to provide and have an opportunity for that to happen. And so they come to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets, it says in verse 3, they come out to Elisha and they say, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Shh. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. 
Jericho, that's a place of confrontation. That's where the battle happens. That's where the strongholds come down. They go through the place of purification and deal with the flesh and come to love the place of the presence of God and spending time in God's presence. But there's a purpose for that. We don't just stay in that place bathing in the glory of God. He brings us to a place of confrontation. You remember Jericho? The place where the walls came down according to the plan of God, not according to the plan of men. What is it that the scripture tells us? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of what? Strongholds. Mighty in God. The weapons of our warfare, not carnal. It's not my plans. It's not the strength of my arm or how good I can shoot a gun. You could arm everybody in the United States and have everybody guard their children. It's like never before and you're still not going to keep them all safe. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they are mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds. That's what Jericho is all about. The third school of the prophets. They come to the third school of the prophets. And all we come to that school and what are we looking at? We're looking at experiencing the the victory and allowing God to give us a victory over the strongholds in our life. Over the battles that we have, over, the, over the, 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 the sin that so easily ensnares us, that wraps us up. We want to have victory over that. We want to have victory. Listen, God has been sharing to me as I've been uh, uh, sharing with me, as I've been praying and seeking the Lord and dealing with uh, uh, some of uh, um, my attitudes, my personal attitudes in prayer, that I'm afraid. I'm afraid to ask God for the really big stuff. I'm afraid to ask God for the big stuff because I'm afraid to be disappointed. Maybe part of the reason why some of my prayers failed early on in my life is because the scripture tells us that, that we ask amiss to spend it on our own pleasures. It was about my life, you know. I used to pray for Joe. We'd bring Joe up in front of church every day and we'd anoint him with oil and we'd pray, God, heal him. God, heal him. Take it away. Take away the autism in his life. Let him be just a regular kid, just like everybody else. And we'd anoint him with oil and we did that every single time we were in the church for years. But one day I just stopped praying it. No. God said no. Well, I see a lot of good things God's worked in his life. But one of the one of the problems that came out of that was me being afraid to pray for really big things, what I thought was really big things. Just last night the Lord just laid on my heart that you know, you, you, I was praying so my life would be easier. Let's be honest. I've, do you want to live a life, live a day in my shoes? Come on over, I'll hook you up. We can, I, I wanted it to all be, all just go away. It's all go away so I don't have to deal with any of these problems and, and any of these things. But I wanted it for me. And the Lord told me last night, he said, Jackie, why don't you pray that 
that I would be glorified in the life of your son, that he would come to know me and be a light of me, and that, and that I would do incredible things in and through his life. But you won't ever pray for him anymore. Why won't you pray for him anymore? Because I'm afraid. What happens if I pray and God don't show up? Oh, that's that you word again. Well, you know the you word, right? Unbelief. <laughs> Those kind only come out one way. You know how? Prayer and fasting. What an incredible journey it has been. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. I just have to learn to pray. Oh, not to just sit in a place and, and you know, give God my shopping list of the things I want to see, but really pray, really, really just come before the Lord and spend time in His presence and pray from a stance of victory in alignment with His Word to watch His work be done. But we're afraid. We want to cast out that unbelief in our life. We have to teach our body that our flesh just doesn't always get what it wants. And we've got to spend time in the presence of God. And when we're in the presence of God, man, the Lord just begins to reveal His plans, His designs for our life. And as He does that, I know how to pray. For the first time in... I don't know, 16 years. I feel like I know how to pray for my son now. Not to just take it all away. But to realize that God wants to do something with his life. It's not just a waste. It's not just a problem. He's a person God can use. He's used him in my life a lot of ways. But he's somebody that God can use. Somebody that God can get a hold of. Somebody that God can do great things through. And, and I was afraid to pray. I had to come to that stronghold and come before that place and say, You know what, God? It's not how I want it to go. It's how you want it to go. What, how do I bring this stronghold down? And the Lord said, You come before me and wrestle in prayer. You come before me and you lift it up to me and you bang on the door. And you keep seeking and you keep knocking and you keep asking. And I don't care how sideways it turns. You keep asking me. You keep seeking me and I'll do it. So... I know how to pray. And a stronghold comes tumbling down. And a struggle with unbelief is pressed out of my life. I think it's a man problem, but sometimes us guys think that, that every problem in our lives we have the solution to. I know how to solve this problem. And I just listen, do what I say, do what I'm telling you, follow what I'm laying out, and, and it's all going to go away. I know how to get there. Let me tell you, we don't know nothing. We can't help nobody. We have, our wisdom is for squat. God is who has the ability to help. And it's to my shame that I have not come before Him 
with that same attitude and that same longing in his presence and seeking what he would want and how I should pray and how I can be a part of a solution, how I can reach my kids, how I can love my son, how I can reach into my other kids' lives, even though they're 770 miles away. God has all those answers. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. The weapon of our warfare, ladies and gentlemen, is prayer. And it is the most neglected thing that, that in Christianity today. I was right there. I would have said all the same things. I would have said, oh, I can pray one time, and the God of the universe, who is able to do abundantly above all I can ask or imagine, I can ask once, and he's either going to do it or he's not. And if he's not going to do it, I'm going to be okay with it. There's just this little problem with that concept. You have these several places in Scripture where the Lord tells stories about women beating on judges' doors until the judge opens the doors. Not because he's saying, I'm a judge who's got my door closed. It's called the comparison by contrast in Hebrew literature. They're, they're saying, this is how we behave in, in the world, in our worldly affairs, and our worldly things, but we won't do this with God. Jesus said, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? If I don't answer you the first time you lay up a prayer, are you just going to quit? He says, you have, we have need of endurance. Man, we need endurance. Yes. We need endurance. That's where they are. They're at Jericho. They're at Jericho, the, the place of confrontation. The place where we confront the battles in our life. Because we do not war our battles not with flesh and blood. Is it? I've had a lot of people that I thought, that's my problem. That person is my problem. No, 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 no. That person is my problem. Or what that person said, that's my problem. What's the Bible say? That it's all these people, they're the problem? The Bible says we battle against principalities and powers. Rulers of the darkness. That's who our battles with. How do you fight them? Prayer. 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 We go before the Lord in prayer. That's how we pull down the strongholds. That's how we pull down the strongholds. So the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and they said, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Shh. Keep silent. And Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Still moving on, still moving forward, passing the place of the strongholds, enjoying the battles, the confrontation that the Lord brings our way. To what? To the Jordan. To the Jordan. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. You remember the Jordan, right? The crossing? The one where the priests had to put their feet in the water and the waters piled up and the armies and the people of Israel were first able to cross into the promised land and stand before their Jericho and do battle. They've come to the Jordan. To me, the Jordan is a place of expectation. That's a place of expecting God to move.
expecting God to keep his word. He said, Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I was afraid. Nothing to be afraid of. God always keeps his word. Always. He will give what we need. He will provide what we lack. He will give us those things that we long for. The place of expectation where we believe God will keep his promise. He will give us what we need. He will equip us for the journey that lies ahead. He will give us that endurance if we will press into him. If we try to do it on our own, like a good father, he'll let us out there. Trying to fight that battle in our own strength and our own power. We come to the place of expectation. We cross that Jordan River and we expect to see God move. I expect to see God move. I'm not praying for a revival because I hope God brings a revival. I don't question the fact that God is going to bring a revival. I pray for a revival because every single revival who ever started, started because men and women were willing to give up their time and come to a place and pray for revival. That's why I pray. I pray for revival because that's how the Spirit of God begins to move and to begin to work. It starts with a work inside of me, and then it goes on to two, and then it goes on to four, and then it goes on to six, and then all of a sudden it's this big crazy thing that nobody can control. And what's the point of it all? The point of it all has never been about Calvary Chapel Buell. I hope nobody ever knows who we are. I hope a revival starts, springs out of here, blows up, changes the entire face of, the, of our area around us, and nobody ever knows where it started from, so they don't name it. I just want to see God move in power. Do you think God doesn't want to do that? That person you pray for that's not saved, do you think God doesn't want to save them? We need to cross the Jordan and come to the place of expectation, expecting to see the promises of God dealt out, expecting to see God move in incredible ways. In 2 Timothy's, Paul's swan song. This is what he wrote to Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things. But nevertheless, I am not ashamed, or another way to say that, I am not disappointed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Paul said, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, not that I am able, who? He is able. He will keep his word. You go through the scripture and see how many places the Lord says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. That there's a, 
a point for us to be in alignment with God and in agreement with His Word. That's an important part of what we're asking. We know if my prayer is not being answered, James tells us, why isn't it being answered? I asked amiss. Well, I asked amiss. There's something wrong with what I'm asking, the way I'm asking, what I want God to do. Or I'm desiring that, whatever I'm desiring, to spend it on me. That's the guy who's asking for a new Lexus, or a new car, or a bigger house, or more money, or whatever other stuff that people ask for so that they can have what they want. It's not about those things. It's about God, seeing God glorified and magnified and moving and working and establishing Himself all around us and moving in incredible ways. We want to see God do that. We want to see God move. I want to see God work. I know He is able. And so I believe Him. So Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He's asking for the blessing of the firstborn. Well, the firstborn got a double portion. The firstborn was the one who carried on the name. The firstborn's the one who's going to carry on the ministry. Elijah, I want to carry on your ministry. Not necessarily I want to do double everything you did. I want the double portion. I want, the, I want the, the part of the air. I want to take what you've begun and I want to complete. I want to continue to move forward in it. I want, I want to have that spirit. So he said to him, you ask a hard thing. It's a hard thing because that office is not Elijah's to give. Who gives it? God. But God already chose Elisha, didn't he? So Elijah says, Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. If not, it will not be. And then it happened. As they continued on and talked, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood at the bank of the river Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water and he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water it was divided this way and that and Elisha crossed over. And when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The Spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Passing of the mantle. Elisha tells us, I want more. I want to be used like you were used. I want to have a ministry like you had. I want more. It's my prayer tonight that that's what you want. That you want more. Because unfortunately what most of us experience in a relationship with Christ is not all that Christ has for us. So much more. 
Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time, this study, Lord. I pray, God, that, I don't know, cry of my heart makes sense. I pray, Lord, that you would allow your word to accomplish that to which it was sent, Lord Jesus. Father, that you would work in our lives. Lord, like Elisha, we want to follow you. We want to go deeper. We want to just stop at the next stop. We want to go to the next place and the next place. We want to go closer and closer, experience more and more of what you have. God, we want everything you have to give. Lord, we pray that you would move in an amazing way, Lord Jesus, as we seek to honor and glorify you. God, I pray for each one here, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, you move in their life. You bring them to the place where they will starve their flesh. Bring them to the place where they will experience your presence. Bring them to the place where they will pull down strongholds in their life. Bring them to the place where they wait with expectation for the move of the hand of God in their life. For you want to move. And Lord, we come before you and we just lay this time in your hands, God. Be glorified and magnified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.